And after some deep self-reflection, he changed his mind on some of the so-called culture war issues and regrets his often divisive rhetoric at the time. He now leads an educational non-profit which takes inspiration from the anti-Nazi dissident Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was executed for plotting against Hitler. Here he is now talking to our Michel Martin about embracing empathy in these turbulent times. You, along with Pat Robertson, are one of the very few white evangelicals to criticize the president for this at a time when there's obviously great unhappiness, anxiety, and grief uh, in the country. Why do you think that is? I think first it points to the moral collapse in my own religious community. Among my fellows, uh, there was a Faustian deal made with Donald Trump, which went something like this. Uh, Donald Trump promised, I will give you everything you've ever wanted on your laundry list of political deliverables if you give me what I want and demand, and that is religious cover. I need you to say that I'm blessed of God and that everything I've done is good. He defended the photo uh, in front of St. John's Church with the Bible by saying a lot of Christians think it's a great photo. Oh, wow. And that's what he needs in the deal. And we made that deal with him. And uh, so there's a moral vacuum. There's an inability to muster the moral courage to stand up to this. I was delighted to see what Pat Robertson said. The fact that he did speak out was terribly important, though a little late in the game. Uh, but he did. But my other colleagues uh, have not been able to do that for a number of reasons. One is because they would be assailed by their own constituents now for doing so. But the other is they would lose access, instant access. They know that Donald Trump will throw them under the bus, will lock them out of the White House, will uh, insult them and disown them in an instant oh, wow. if they displease him. They are aware of that. Wow. And so they have to play uh, this game very, very carefully. They're on very thin ice. Oh my God. They want uh, what they still have outstanding on the list, which is a final appointment to the Supreme Court to give them a, a rock solid conservative majority. They're not gonna let anything endanger that, even this kind of supremely offensive behavior. We keep hearing, particularly from political figures, that privately the conversations are different. Um, I don't know how much credence to give to that because the fact of the matter is if you are a public figure, your public utterances are your record. But I do wonder what kinds of conversations that you have with fellow evangelicals because quite in, in public, the support is as strong as ever. I mean, you know, Ralph Reed, who's kind of taken over the mantle of the the the, uh, the moral majority, as it were, the sort of the politically most active evangelicals, particularly white evangelicals, social conservatives, you know, very strongly defending it. I was just sort of curious about that. Their support has been as strong publicly as ever. Are the conversations privately different? Well, you know, a year, two years ago, I used to hear my colleagues, they would whisper, you know, I know the guy's way over the top. I know he's terribly offensive. I know he's way too visceral, uh, he's too impulsive, he doesn't know us, he's not religious. Look, we know who he is, he's a secularist, he's not a believer. 
but he's good for us and who else is going to get this done and it's going to take a fighter like him to get it done now i don't hear that much yeah because he ain't got nothing done and that that's even more distressing to me <clears throat> because what it seems to suggest is that a kind of final conversion has taken place at least in their thinking if not in their hearts and if it is in their hearts then i i i i fear for them i mean in one sense just in terms of reclaiming their moral integrity uh regaining a sense of ethics and what is right and wrong and if that if they have lost that ability to discern that then they are indeed in very grave danger personally certainly as a community i mean we know what the history of demoralized churches are uh they quickly become relics of history and not good ones uh and then of course there's i'm still a believer in salvation i think we have to have a certain standing before god and if we lose that we've lost everything the bible even reminds us of that it says what does it profit a man if he gain the whole world but lose his soul that's the ultimate loss i do know that the southern baptist convention just had their convention it is the nation's largest protestant denomination and they show a membership decline it's the 13th straight year of decline it's the largest single year decline in more than a century what, what are you saying and that's true almost across the board and especially when you look at under age 45 and the younger the worse the statistics become young people especially are leaving evangelical churches in droves and why because they see the hypocrisy yes they see yes. uh an identification with establishment power with political force and influence they are tired of the combat the uh social conflict the uh wars uh many of them ginned up look i know this stuff personally i battled with fundraisers for decades who told me uh look we need to leave your people afraid and angry oh wow the matter they are the more fearful they are the more money they're gonna send you oh wow give us more fear and more anger wow i was actually told that explicitly at a conference room table we need more fear and more anger well young people are sick of that you've had some significant breaks with others in the evangelical movement uh over the years now i mean you've broken with them on the issue of expansive gun rights you've broken with them around the issue of how abortion should be discussed and thought of a sort of a number of issues and i can imagine that you know some people would, would say you're the wrong one i mean you're the outlier you're the one who's getting it wrong and in fact some people would might argue that your point of view is dangerous that you're imperiling people's souls and i just wondered how you have reconciled yourself to this you know over the years what convinces you and affirms you in your view that your path 
here is the path that really others should be taking. Humbly, I would say. Well, it's been anything but easy, uh, including internally. Uh, it's been a very difficult journey for me, but it started by facing myself. And that was a terrifying thing to do, to listen to my own words and to watch their effect on other people, on the other person, instead of constantly listening so that I would feel better about myself, I started listening to hear the effect of my words on others. That mm. was part of that process of change. But I'm not alone. There's a book out now called The Spiritual Danger of Donald Trump in which 30 top level, some of the best uh, evangelical hearts and minds in the United States, writing essays, warning of why the Trump culture, not necessarily Donald Trump as an individual human being, but the political and social culture that Donald Trump, Trump represents and fosters is so dangerous, particularly to Christians. Mm. And I go back to, again, what what is our message? What what? What are we trying to proclaim and live out? And if I look at the model of Jesus, and if evangelicalism is anything, it's Jesus-centered. We call it, in theological speak, being Christocentric. Jesus Christ being at the center of everything we say, do, believe, proclaim, practice, all of it. The centrality is Jesus Christ. He becomes the model. Too many Christians uh, segregate the world. We are segregationists into the saved and the lost. Those who know God, those mm -hmm. who don't. Those who are sinners, those who are saved and sanctified. Well, that's not the way Jesus treated people. Mm. He treated every human being with precisely the same love, respect, and dignity. And that's the heart of the gospel. So for me, this is all about returning to my original faith, not renouncing my yeah. faith. That's, that's, that's awesome. Tonight. Well, I tell you. See, this is this is a turning point, you guys. This is the turning point. You either weigh God or you're not. You, you, this compromising will only last for a season. And then after that, what did Rob, um, Reverend Reveal, revealed? <laughs> your soul is at stake here. Your moral content, your moral character is at stake here when it comes down to Donald Trump in the evangelical um, organization. And that's us Christian folks, but mostly when they say evangelical, <laughs> they are referring to the white Christians. So that's a warning. You decide. Just check out the link below and you can watch the whole interview in its entirety. But and the only reason why I'm adding this to my broadcast because uh, I I've said it all. I'm always speaking truth, even though I know that you won't listen to a poor man, but you'll listen to a rich man per se that don't have nothing to say, 
but because he have money and power, they run to it and they listen to it, and that's why a lot of people falling off the cliff. I'm not saying that I am poor. I'm poor in spirit towards the Father, meaning I'm humble before him. But I'm very, very wealthy in spirit. And if I die today, which I'm ready, I know I get to see and be with my Lord in the heavenly realm. It's no shout of doubt about that. Because when I wake up in the morning, thank you, Father. And go to bed at night, Father, you know, oh, this really kind of got me disturbed, but I repent. I repent how I feel. I repent what I did. I repent. I need you to help me. My thoughts just, hey, it's a constant cleansing. Repenting is just cleansing, y'all. It's just cleansing. It's not a bad word. It's a good word. It's a good word. I believe if we have more people repenting and stop judging each other, hey, (laughs) you're going to see a whole nother. You talking about a revolution? That will be the revolution right there. All right. Well, God bless you guys. Is there something else that I came across on on YouTube? And it's awesome interview with this pastor who had to step back. And as you heard in the beginning, he said they all came in there and Donald Trump told them what he wanted from them. And he will honor their laundry list. And as you heard, half of it's still not fulfilled. See, four years went by. Because, see, he wasn't worrying about all that. He just take care of me. And I'll get to whatever you asking me to do on your behalf. But at this present moment, I need y'all to make me look good. I need y'all to come up in here and pray over me. I need y'all to come up in here and, and say Donald Trump this and this. And that's the president. You know, because I remember a whole bunch of them when they first was the election. A whole bunch of them evangelicals. I was kind of surprised. Yeah, we're going we're gonna to remove this other president. And Donald Trump, he is our president. We're going to pray for him. The Lord showed me that this is the one. Okay. 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 And the only thing I kept getting during that time, y'all, and it's the honest truth, and I wrote in my diary. The only thing I kept getting is... The Spirit of God was revealing to me how the Israelites were saying, we want a king, we want a king, we want a king. And he trying to explain to them through Samuel, I'm your king. I'm the king of kings and lord of lords. Well, every other nation, every other tribe got their king. We want us a king. And so it kept going and going and going. And God got tired of it. And he backed up and he said, okay, Samuel, go ahead. Go, go down there and... They got this young man named Saul. Let's go ahead and anoint him and now be their king. Present them their king. That's what he, that's what, and you go read the scriptures. I'll find the scripture for you and put it in the link. He said, go show them their king. Cause that's not the king I chose. At that time, they didn't need no king. But that's just like how America, you know, I'm sorry to say it, but this is just how it was. We want a white president. Get that black president out of there. And I'm telling you guys, I walked away from a lot of my Christian sisters and brothers. But mostly it was sisters. Because every time I turned around, it was bad mountain Obama. I mean, okay, so, okay, yeah, da-da-da. But every president have their flaw. Our job was to pray for him. I mean, I had to pray for Bush. We all prayed for President Bush. With an open spirit and an open heart. I prayed for all the presidents when I learned that it was my job to pray for the leaders of our country, the leaders in our city, the leaders in your community. 
And even now, I do. I pray for that man. I'll say, Lord, have mercy on this man, Trump. Have mercy on him. I have a picture with him. And I take that picture and I pray over it. And I say, God, help this man because he just don't even understand. Once he get out of his office, my, 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 he going to need your mercy. He going to need your mercy. And God has given me specific things to pray for this man. And it's only calling the word of God that's going to be able to deal with Donald Trump. Not us. God going to deal with him. Okay? So just remember that. Whatever you put out there is coming back to you. And it's going to come back to you hard if you were to participate in of it and you don't repent of it. And I say it because I know throughout my life, I know I haven't been perfect patty. Oh, and probably this last year, oh my God, all kind of stuff happened. And the worst that God, the, I just shut my mouth. I don't even say, I didn't even, I don't even eat on my job. I, I just like, you know what? I'm not fussing back and forth. I'm not going to try to debate. Whatever they want to do, do it. It don't matter. It didn't matter. It's like I was just striving to be in a place of peace because I already know what I was dealing with mentally and in my personal life and making sure that I can keep and maintain a roof over my head and, and continue to strive in my business and in my ministry. So all the other stuff that people thought that Dr. D was worrying about, no, I wasn't. I was trying to take care of myself. I was going through a battle. And until me and my daughter was talking about that the other day, Oh, I should have went brought this on another ep- on another. I'm gonna talk about this on another feed. I didn't want to get that mixed up like that. All right, God bless you. decision to put yet another patient on a ventilator. I'm just going to support you right here, okay? It's now a last resort to keep oxygen-starved patients alive. This is my third intubation of the day, um, and that's not typical for us. Just getting you some medicines make me nice and sleepy. In the last two weeks, 18 people who came into this ICU did not survive. Things getting worse for you here? Now we're up to about 14 patients, and we've got a max capacity of 18. The number of COVID patients here has tripled in 11 days. I don't think we've hit that peak at all. And the thing is that from here, we don't have a place to go out. You know, the floors are busy, and they're full as well. 52-year-old London Kennard was admitted 10 days ago. By the time I got the attention, I couldn't breathe. I was weak. At one point, he says he thought he wasn't going to make it and called his family. I told him I love him, but I was actually telling him goodbye. South Carolina is seeing a surge of cases, and of the more than 50,000, about 11,000 are people under 30. There are 14 patients on this floor right now, three on ventilators, all of them intensive care. ICU doctors and nurses say they have treated patients on this floor as young as 21 and as old as 105. One of our patients that was the sickest for the longest period of time and had gone through so much. He was an otherwise healthy person, young, 
and uh, still didn't survive this. She thinks if people could see what she sees, how COVID ravages the body, they might think twice about not wearing a mask. A snapshot from the front lines of a pandemic that shows no signs of slowing down. Ellison Barber, NBC News, West Columbia, South Carolina. As the outbreak soars in the U.S., Europe, which has essentially banned American travelers, is returning to a semblance of normalcy. Richard Engel on what Europe did right and what the U.S. could learn from it. U.S. is hitting record COVID cases. Europe is getting back to business. Despite a few targeted closures in hotspots, Europe appears to be over its first wave. The United States clearly is not. The numbers tell the story. This graph shows how Europe and the U.S. both faced an initial surge in coronavirus cases. But then Europe crushed the curve to where it's now well below the U.S. and stable. While the U.S. vacillated, lost time, and eventually flattened the curve, only to see cases skyrocket yep. in June. Yep, but that's when they opened back up and they each country in Europe closed. had slightly different experiences, generally, Europe stuck to a script. COVID policies were national, not up to local discretion. The science was never politicized. Mask wearing was widely accepted, not seen as an affront. Closures were enacted quickly and lifted slowly. European countries are looking at a number of countries in the world, Brazil, the United States, India, Russia in particular, as uh, reservoirs of infection that will continue to pose a threat to the rest of the world. Dr. Anthony Fauci admitted the U.S. isn't following a winning formula. When you compare us to other countries, I don't think you can say we're doing great. I mean, we're just not. COVID has been a test. The U.S. so far is failing. Has failed, failed it. <laughs> Without mentioning any country in particular, Germany's Angela Merkel this week said the pandemic can't be fought with lies and disinformation, hatred or agitation. She said COVID exposed the limits of fact-denying populism. President Trump has insisted on reopening schools. Here in Europe, that's already happening. But most countries waited until they'd flattened the curve before bringing students back. That's right. Lester. Richard Engel tonight. Thank you, Richard. That's right. Why are liberal politicians like Sheila Jackson Lee, Rodney Ellis, Sylvester Turner, and Al Green supporting Radical Royce? Because they know he will deliver on their liberal agenda. We must say no to Royce West. What? Stop his liberal agenda. What the hell? What was that? To run my old computers... <laughs> I'm confused, y'all. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. I, I gotta go back. I, I missed I missed that that little. Oh my gosh. What was that, y'all? Of course, we need somebody to support our agenda. Our agenda is equal equality, social um, um, justice to be. Wait, social equality and wipe out the injustice of this brutality and the black unequally served or value as human beings in this earth. So that kind of caught me off guard, y'all, and I can't even find it now. Wow. Uh, let me see. Let me see. Oh, my gosh. That kind of threw me off. What were I watching? Because it's probably going to come through. Uh, 
Well, that was interesting. Wow. Really? I just... I can't believe this. So this is how we're gonna... This is how we're gonna go to this election? Create the distance, and then you can push out. Does that make sense? Yes. Geneva Solomon is a mother of three and firearms instructor in Los Angeles. She teaches self-defense and shooting skills to a group of black gun enthusiasts and me, a New Yorker who's never touched a gun. Oh, shit. Geneva says she didn't grow up around guns, but first turned to firearms for self-defense after leaving a relationship she described as violent. And so I walked into a gun store, and um, I'm a black woman walking into a gun store. I was the only one there. And I think I waited about an hour and a half before someone would come and talk to me. And I didn't like that experience at all. The memory of that experience prompted Geneva and her husband, Jonathan, to open Redstone Firearms. But in the five years they've been open, they've dealt with some harassment. We've had swastikas carved into the windows, cars been keyed, um, emails have been sent, lots of threatening phone calls. There's not a lot of Black-owned gun shops in the country. It's pretty rare. We didn't really realize we were that unique. It wasn't until about a year into operating the actual store that I sat down, got on the computer and realized, oh my God. We're one of like five, and we're the only one in California. Redstone Firearms is registered with the NRA. The organization has a tight grip on the gun industry, offering benefits to business owners like Geneva. Yet Geneva turned to another gun club for a sense of belonging. Its name? The National African American Gun Association, or NAGA. Some call it the NRA for Black people. Two to the body, one to the head. The Solomons are Naga State Directors for California. Shoot it ready! Shoot! Dr. Rashid Ivey is one of Naga's newest members. I love what Naga's doing and loved how positive they were, how much they were really devoted to teaching people how to be positive gun owners and changing the stigma in our communities of gun ownership. Are you also a member of the NRA? No. Why not? The stigma associated with them is that they're race. It's a racist organization. Black gun owners and the NRA have had a contentious relationship for generations. In 1967, in response to the Black Panther Party legally and openly carrying loaded guns, the NRA actually supported gun control legislation. Old wounds were reopened in 2016 when registered gun owner Philando Castile was shot and killed by a police officer. Told not to reach for it. I told to get his hand open. He had. You told him to get his ID, sir. His driver's license. The officer was later acquitted of manslaughter. But at the time of Castile's death, the NRA released a statement saying reports of the incident were troubling. But that response wasn't enough for many Black Americans. No justice. No peace. Yet the NRA continues to be a political firepower that touts its inclusivity. We in this room, we all come from every conceivable walk of life. 
We're proud of that diversity within our ranks. I have one question to ask. Where are all my naggers at? I can't hear you. One more time. Where are all my naggers at? NAGA is nowhere near as large as the NRA, which has over 5 million members, but it wants some of the same influence. NAGA celebrated its fifth anniversary this year and is considering forming a political action committee. When I first started uh, NAGA, I thought, I told my wife, I might have 300 people over two or three years. But in the first month, I had 300 people. And we are now at the place where over 30,000 members. And what makes us different than any other firearms organization is that we are family, brotherhood and sisterhood. We agree to disagree, but we do not disconnect. Repeat it with me. We agree to disagree, but not disconnect. Good people should have a fighting chance to defend themselves. And if they want our assistance in that process, we're here for them. I'd rather have a good guy with a gun than a good guy without a gun. When you say good guy with a gun, the first thing I think of is Philando Castile. Are you afraid, being a black gun owner, that you will do everything you are supposed to do, everything the correct way, but still end up like him? The worst thing we can do as black folks, and I'm just going to keep it 100, is to say, you know what, he got shot, so I'm going to put my gun away because of one bad person. So as a black gun owner, we should all say, you know what, I'm really going to carry my gun. We can't bow down. We're not sub-Americans. We're not sub Citizens, we've earned that right. Our ancestors have died for us. NAGA is looking at possibly forming a pack. Mm -hmm. Why? I think it is selfish, at a minimum, not to look at other avenues to help our people. Are you going to be looking to endorse candidates or focus on issues? We're going to focus on issues. Well, there's some African-American men, specifically in certain parts of the country, they have a very difficult time getting a gun license for whatever reason. They don't have any background issues, they have clean credit, they have a good job, but for some reason they get declined. We would like to be an advocate for those type of individuals. Phil is leaving the decision to form a pact to members. So first off, just show of hands, who thinks NAGA should form a pact? Wow, a good chunk of the room. Who thinks you should endorse a candidate? Wow, no one, all right, so are you concerned that if NAGA goes political, some white people are going to be afraid that it's the new Black Panther Party? I don't care what they think. <laughs> Why have a National African American Gun Association? Why not just join the NRA? Well, this is America, right? We can create any organization that we want. And why shouldn't we create an organization that we're prideful of, an organization that is focused on our community, an organization that's focused on education? Why not? Right? So I really don't care what anyone thinks. It's not about them. It's about us. If we focus on them, that's what they want. The group will decide on its political future at a convention in August of next year. A lot has happened since we attended NAGA's meeting. I can't breathe! I can't breathe! The continuing threat of coronavirus and the fallout over the recent killings of black men and women have led to a surge in NAGA membership. Roughly about 5,500 people have joined NAGA within the last few months based on what's happening out in society. On one half, people were joining the organization partly because they were fearful of, you know, society breaking down, of shortage of food, of people coming in and raiding and doing home invasions. 
And on the other hand, now you have black men and women getting shot, police running into their homes, um, shooting them without any type of warning or cause. Those two things together has really developed a melting pot of anger, um, of concern. And so in preparation for that, people are saying, you know what? I'm going to go out and buy a gun. I might even be anti-gun, but I'm going to go ahead and buy a gun because I just don't know what's going to happen. Amazing, I tell you, and um, I, I like that. At least I know. Let's see. I was all that. So that's that's the. You just heard this organization is really helping, teaching you how to be proactive with gun and gun control within your own family. I think that's a good thing. I'm going to check into them and probably go and get trained by them. How about that? All right. I'll check with you guys later on the next episode. George Floyd, after a white police officer knelt on his neck for nearly nine minutes, was caught on camera by not one, but several witnesses as they begged officers to let Floyd up. The footage, following so many incidents of systemic racism and police brutality filmed in recent years, ignited protests around the world. It's time for us to stand up in George's name and say, get your knee off our necks. To have our dear brother George Floyd's murder televised. No one in their right mind, regardless of their ethnic identity, could deny that. So that's where surveillance works in our favor. That our people knew to survey. They knew to bear witness. They knew to record because no one would ever believe them if they told their story. As hundreds of thousands joined the protests, cameras on both sides ignited debates over privacy and the right to photograph. In the 1950s, news cameras exposed the brutal horror of legalized racism in the form of segregation. Seventy years later, it is the cell phone camera that has exposed the continuation of violence directed at African Americans by the police. Law enforcement flew drones over protests in Minneapolis and New York. Facial recognition software is being used with some police body cameras. Law enforcement can use signals from your cell phone or automatic license plate readers to follow your movements. Images of unity or chaos spread across social media in an instant. Every time they turn on social media, they get to see in real time vivid HD pictures of black pain. In the age of surveillance, we wanted to find out how police are tracking protests, how the data is used, and how cameras on every officer and in every pocket have fundamentally changed the way we protest. Police surveillance of the black community is not new. From 18th century ordinances that required slaves in New York to carry lanterns after dark, to the FBI wiretapping of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., to stop and frisk policies that disproportionately target people of color. We have lived a certain level of surveillance since, since we landed on these shores. They're walking around waiting for you to do something wrong, a reason to jump in. 
What's different with the surveillance of recent protests is just how powerful the technology has become. The mentality is often, let's put the technology out there, let's use the surveillance, and then we'll deal with the problems after the fact. And so often, the problems after the fact have been substantial, and they've been problems that have been borne disproportionately by communities of color. Surveillance of these protests has involved multiple federal agencies using groundbreaking tech from private vendors. You see vendors bragging that they can identify hundreds of people from a single photograph, right? Or identify people as they walk by a camera. Um, there's also things like drone technology and the integration of drone technology with face recognition. Four days after George Floyd was killed in Minneapolis, Customs and Border Protection flew an unarmed predator drone over protesters there. DEA, CBP, and ICE do not have a role in this, and they should not be using their surveillance technologies and militarized equipment um, to combat protesters. This increased presence of these officers is something that you know not only chills individuals' right to protest and makes them more afraid, um, but is just not contributing to an overall field of safety in the community. In an email, CBP told CNBC that it has resources deployed in several states at the request of law enforcement in order to protect our communities and ensure that the rights of Americans to peacefully protest are protected. The drone was deployed to feed live video to law enforcement on the ground to aid in situational awareness. You want to have pinpoint accuracy if somebody's throwing things at the police. You don't want the police to have a, a broad-based response and then go after everyone in front of them. So having cameras, and having uh, video footage is gonna help the police identify who the bad people are. Protesters have also reported drone surveillance in New York, where the NYPD's Technical Assistance Response Unit operates a fleet of 14 surveillance drones with thermal sensors to detect a person's heat energy. I've literally been at a protest staring kind of eye level at a drone. <laughs> so I know that my face is on camera. But a lack of transparency makes it hard to identify exactly what tech each jurisdiction is using to identify and track protesters. When we think about surveillance technologies, in the vast majority of cases, they're acquired secretly. They're not approved by you know, publicly elected city councils or legislative officials. Often we find out about them you know, decades after they've been deployed. Street-level surveillance tools are also rapidly advancing and remain largely unregulated. The government has made so many, uh, so many partnerships with private surveillance tech vendors. Big platforms like Clearview AI, which is this giant facial recognition platform which, which scrubbed a bunch of images from the internet and are currently using them to run against people's faces in real time. Another example is cell site simulators, or stingrays, used by law enforcement to track precise location. So your phone, rather than going to a cell phone tower, will ping off this piece of surveillance technology, and it will be able to identify maybe who's in the area, how many phones are in the area. It will be able to link your phone to a certain location at a certain time. There's currently no federal law protecting the privacy of adults in public spaces. But one Supreme Court ruling did deal with this issue. Carpenter v. USA, which just came out in 2018, um, said that kind of uh, aggregate tracking of people's location through cell phone data constitutes a, a violation of privacy. Movement of protesters can also be tracked using a number of other tools. Stingray data can be combined with a number of other things like 
face recognition, which can identify you at a protest, or an automated license plate reader, if they know that they're going to be maybe followed home by some of this technology so that police can learn where they live. People are going to be afraid to participate in, in our democracy, in politics, as is our First Amendment right to do so. The EFF has a tip sheet for how to spot street-level surveillance tech like this and others, including tattoo and iris recognition software and acoustic gunshot detection systems, which record the sound and location of a shot and alert law enforcement. Surveillance, very often, it doesn't leave a very visible paper trail for us on the outside. It takes a lot of investigative journalism. It takes a lot of accountability. It takes public records requests to figure out exactly the extent of the surveillance that we're seeing now. So we might not know what's being deployed right now for a little while. While surveillance tech remains fairly unregulated for now, legislation is showing up at the local level. And 35 members of Congress signed a letter in early June asking federal authorities from the FBI, CBP, DEA, and National Guard to stop spying on Americans who are peacefully protesting. One of the best ones is CCOPS, Community Control Over Police Surveillance, which would, uh, among other things, give citizens of a town more control over what surveillance measures police are buying, what they're deploying. At police departments in some cities, facial recognition software is now integrated into the body-worn cameras that have been in widespread use for years. A 2016 study found that half of American adults are in a law enforcement facial recognition database. So far, a handful of cities have banned the use of facial recognition software, and statewide bans of its use with body-worn cameras are in place in Oregon, New Hampshire, and most recently, California. Companies are also chiming in. In June, both Amazon and Microsoft announced they won't sell their facial recognition software to police until stronger regulation is in place. And IBM announced it's getting out of the facial recognition business altogether. Axon, who's a manufacturer of body cameras, has said that they will not integrate face recognition into body cameras given, you know, many issues, including the privacy and civil rights concerns. Body cameras are, were intended to be tools of accountability. Um, to turn them into surveillance cameras now targeted at the very communities they were intended to protect um, is certainly not how they're supposed to be used, not how they should be used, and not how they um, should be permitted to be used. We want to make sure that all our troopers are equipped with body-worn cameras. Um, and one of the primary reasons is to ensure the safety of not only our troopers, but the community at large. We want to ensure that there's accountability on our end and what we are reporting is the most accurate information. Connecticut state troopers wear body cameras, but they're not equipped with facial recognition software. In Connecticut and elsewhere, police have acted in ways to mend trust, showing solidarity with protesters. The police have a fiduciary responsibility to protect the protesters as well. Once they walk up onto the highway, you really have to stop traffic because you need to keep the protesters safe. And if you acknowledge the pain of the protesters, then that's mostly what we want. Stop ignoring our pain. Stop ignoring the plight that we go through. As a mother of black kids, something has to change. When you're interacting with the public, you're either doing one of two things, either building the trust that they have in our police agency or diminishing that trust. While cameras are nothing new, the fact that they're on many police officers and in almost every pocket has a profound impact on protesting and policing. For many of us who've been living this life, we understand its realities have always been here. There's enough video out there of seeing white face hurting black bodies. And there's enough video out there of seeing black faces, quote, looting. 
So it's perpetuating stereotypes and fear. Still, the ability to record from almost any cell phone has shifted the power dynamics. There is power because we have been disempowered in so many ways. Our ability to, to pick up and record for ourselves and it's being validated by others around the world of African ancestry who are having the exact same similar experiences. The videos of peaceful protesters, you know, being sprayed with you know, tear gas, essentially, and having rubber bullets used on them before curfew um, and at a time when people were just peacefully protesting, I think has prompted a lot of public officials to not just sort of ask what happened, but it has made it impossible for them to pretend like nothing wrong happened. In 1991, a witness recorded on his camcorder as four LAPD officers beat Rodney King. The line of demarcation with policing and video was the Rodney King uh, situation. And people in Los Angeles said for the first time ever, finally, we've got video proof of what we've been complaining about for generations. So clearly now the system is going to do the right thing. And they didn't. Experts say that filming changes nothing if those caught on camera aren't held accountable. Citizens are now policing the police because we've seen that the police cannot police themselves. We want levels of accountability. And if police officers aren't arrested, charged, and convicted, then there's not going to be a change in policing. Even when we've had the camera and we've clearly seen what we saw, somehow that law enforcement person was not held accountable. And psychologists like Jackson point out the instant gratification of sharing images to social media also changes how we protest. Why, why am I under arrest? For those who carry cameras professionally and journalists like CNN's Omar Jimenez documenting the protests, the heightened tensions have led to an unprecedented number of arrests and even violent clashes with law enforcement. To see reporters being arrested on live TV it's, it's, it's just shocking in this country, and it's because people are blindly following uh, orders, are blindly following directions. The solution, Boyd suggests, is different training. Police training for 400 years has been flawed, and we train from the perspective of the police. So what if we start studying policing from the perspective of the community. Because law enforcement is not required to disclose how they use the data collected by surveillance, experts are making educated guesses about what comes next. Eventually, they're going to start collecting video footage and people that they recognize, they're going to try to prosecute. Lack of trust around how data is used has been heightened since Google and Apple announced big plans for COVID-19 contact tracing, a perception that wasn't helped when Minnesota Public Safety Commissioner John Harrington compared their methods of analyzing those arrested at protests to contact tracing. We have begun analyzing the data of who we've arrested and begun actually doing what you would think is almost very similar to our COVID. It's, it's contact tracing. The data being analyzed in this case was used to determine that many of those being destructive came from outside the state. And they're out here instigating, and they are the rioters, the looters, who are moving from one space to the other to change the game, to make a noise out here, to distract the meaning. We have people who are rioting intentionally to cause harm. Law enforcement has a right to arrest them. Footage from businesses' closed-circuit TV cameras can catch people looting after the fact 
or track down terrorism suspects, like those responsible for the Boston Marathon bombing in 2013 and the 2005 London bombings. Whether it be CCTV footage or footage from people's ring cameras, I mean, there are probably even times when protesters' footage from their cell phones posted on social media probably captures the faces of somebody that police want to confirm were at a protest. Any footage out there uh, can be used by the police. At the 2004 Republican National Convention, the NYPD filmed protesters. Later, the footage was used to determine charges against the protesters they had arrested. It was very um, central, actually, to the litigation about the protests and about, you know, this practice they had of, like, kettling people on a block and then not get, and then giving, allegedly giving an order to disperse and then arresting everyone on the block, which was the subject of, you know, intense litigation for many years. During the Freddie Gray protests in Baltimore in 2015, an ACLU report found that law enforcement used a tool called Geofedia to trace people's locations using public social media feeds. In that instance, they said um, that they were scanning the protest looking for people with outstanding warrants, and there were instances that you know suggested that they then followed up. Obviously, a massive First Amendment concern. Another criticism of surveillance is the way it's used against undocumented protesters, particularly when federal authorities like immigration and customs enforcement are involved. ICE has targeted people who they know to be protesters, particularly given the current administration is tweeting things like, you know, threatening to shoot people who are protesting. I think that it's definitely clear that they're going to use every weapon at their disposal, certainly including ICE. Questions around surveillance have led to organizations like the ACLU putting out tips on how to protect your privacy while protesting. Make sure you've encrypted your device. Make sure that your device has a strong password. I think that what we have to push towards is a world where people can feel free to go to protests and express themselves without worrying that they're going to be targeted by surveillance. As surveillance tech reaches new levels of intensity, civil rights activists say protesters are justified in being afraid their privacy is being violated. Why are there law enforcement officials, you know, in full riot gear? Why are there drones flying up ahead? These are protests against police brutality that have largely been peaceful. Why is there this sort of increased militarized presence um, that, that should not exist um, in this context? One reason is that President Trump called for mobilization of the military to quell the protests declaring himself the president of law and order. As we speak, I am dispatching thousands and thousands of heavily armed soldiers, military personnel, and law enforcement officers. And in a tweet that was censored by Twitter for inciting violence, he said, when the looting starts, the shooting starts. Debates over solutions to privacy concerns, meanwhile, are running strong. Should photographers blur the faces of protesters, for example? I think if you are a protester, though, and you are filming what police are doing at the protest, you, I think you absolutely should be careful, though, what else you get in that photo um, and to think about other protesters' privacies. Signal, the secure private messaging app, is sending out free Encrypt Your Face masks. Masks prevent facial recognition and the spread of COVID-19. Wearing sunglasses, covering up tattoos, and wearing generic clothing makes tracking even harder. Those calling for defunding of police want the millions spent on surveillance to go into community resources instead. There is a long-standing movement of people who have been trying to block huge expenditures on surveillance technology, whether it's drones or helicopters or stingrays or other surveillance technology, which is tremendously expensive. And we want those funds to be invested in the things that we know keep our communities safe. In the age of surveillance, the real question remains, will tech help or hurt in the pursuit of a more just society? It's just a tool 
So it's like if you use a hammer to hammer in a nail, it's good. If you use a hammer as a weapon, it's bad. So it's, it, it just depends on how you choose to use the technology. So surveillance, unfortunately, is part of our life. So like anything else, we can be fearful of it or we can try to make it work for us and be intentional in how we protect ourselves in that context. It's an awesome documentary to understand what's happening with the surveillance and the protests. And y'all know that the protest is still going on. Just <laughs> uh, they're striving to die down by the COVID-19, but the protest is still going on. And now they have these other uh, organizations such as ACLU. I'll put all the links in the description where you can go and click and not only see the 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 documentary in its entirety about surveillance, um, surveillance and protesting. And, um, and then you can look at the notes, you can go online for yourself and say, wow, I didn't know this was happening. And as always, you're going to, I'm going to share it first here on Boom Factor. So you can be aware. The whole thing is that the word of God tells us that he will not uh, have us ignorant of the enemy devices. Now we know surveillance, uh, the surveillance uh, is going to be a big factor in this one world order. Cashless society. We went somewhere the other day and um, you could say I panicked a little because I didn't have my card on me because they say no cash, only uh, credit, credit card or debit or pay where you can use your phone and pay with or your watch. That's the new thing now. And so my daughter was like, Mama, I'll pay for it and you just cash at me back or whatever. And so um, it just so happened the sign was on that particular cash register because you know they have their shield up because of the coronavirus. They have their plexiglass up now to protect their cashiers, okay? And so I just, my eyes just focused on that um, sign, the sign that they had over the, on the side of the plexiglass. And I was like, oh my gosh. But the Holy Spirit was saying, well, daughter, get, you know, get, get prepared because through all of this here, it's going to be to the point where you're not going to be able to use cash at this present moment because of the high rate of this coronavirus that, uh, is, is being revealed. And that's still, making contact when I'm passing my money to the other person. If God forbid I sneeze or somebody came brushed upon me with coronavirus, cause we still don't know who's who, even though we all have these masks on, we should, we don't know who's carrying what, right? So the mask is at least a, a middle safe haven to protect us. Right. Okay. So that's why we wearing the mask. So I don't know if I'm in a store and accidentally pass down the same aisle that somebody had coronavirus and sneezed without a mask. So I didn't pass down the aisle and I didn't walk all into corona. Okay, so the, the, the elements of the bacteria is on me. 
Okay, so now I'm I'm touching my groceries, I'm touching my money, I'm touching my purse, I'm going to the car, I'm touching the car. Okay, all that I'm spreading it. I'm spreading. Now going home, thank God I don't have a, a season uh, a senior citizen live here at my home, but I guess I can consider myself um a seasoned citizen. I'm over fifty. I feel I'm still a young buck, but you know how it is. I'm getting up there to the 60s. I'm getting in there. I'm looking forward to hit that big 6-0, and I'm like, whoa, this is kind of like interesting, man. Lord, I'm been I'm gonna be on this earth almost 60 years. Wow. So I gotta protect myself even with that. So that's what I'm saying. I said, oh wow. So now. I may not even have to even carry my whole purse or whatever. I just have my credit card. Or since you got your phone, and even as y'all just heard on the on this little episode that I, I reveal how they have they not only protesting but they is um, some scrutiny coming up now because the policemen want to use the surveillance for the protesters and and the cameras and it just linking everything together, which is some good vital information that you guys need to hear. And so even with that, I was like, Hmm, yeah, these companies may say no here, but if you listen to my broadcast last week, they have companies that are investing in the surveillance because it's going to connect with what I said earlier, the world, the one world order cashless society and this COVID-19 man they you they're spending it on this this coronavirus oh yes they is definitely definitely using this as a elevator to to reach whatever height they need to reach in every area of life so I pray that you guys are doing the same thing I said like I stated before it's time to reset reset your life reset your focus this downtime, it's time to reset. I mean, because it, it's, it, it's not going to be as business as usual. I used to always say that too. It's not going to be the same no more, y'all. So let's get ready. All right? I'll check you guys out on the next episode. It's Dr. D. And don't forget, send me an email. Give me a shout-out at boomfactortv at gmail.com. Let me know what's going on because I don't want to hear no, no, no sad stories now when I, about, when I come out live on the show where you can literally see me and start having these awesome blessings that God want to share with the world. Don't, don't get upset. Well, she ain't never said nothing on the broadcast. I'm telling you right now. Get in the loop right now. Send me a shout-out. BoomFactorTV at gmail.com. Or you can see me live because I do do some impromptu videos right quick on Facebook.com slash BoomFactor. Okay? Or you can just Google me. Donia Irvin. D-O-N-I-E-L. Last name Irvin. E-R-V-I-N. And I'm the little, I'm the black chick with the braids. I ain't these other people that's popping up underneath my name. <laughs> okay. I didn't set, I didn't uh, pave the way for a lot of things that God have blessed me to to experience. And now we going into a whole nother dimension now, and is is video. So um, I'm doing what I can with what I have to convert um, 
my industries to be more accessible online. Okay? So I appreciate you all. God bless you. Have a wonderful day. If I come across anything else, you know, hey, I'm going to plug it in right here on the Boom Factor Radio. It's Dr. D. Love you. city of Atlanta, which announced just moments ago it is preparing to shut back down due to the surge in coronavirus cases there. They are returning to phase one of reopening, which means residents must stay home except for essential trips. Only essential businesses and city services can operate. Now, this is the biggest move yet by a major city in the opposite direction here of, of progress. It comes as the president grows more and more detached from reality on this and detached from his top medical expert, Dr. Anthony Fauci. Here's President Trump just hours ago. He was speaking in the state of Florida. He was actually there for a fundraiser and an event on drugs. But it happens to be the place where coronavirus cases are growing faster than any country on Earth, up 1,237% since May 1st. In the United States, at least before the the COVID came to us, the flu, the virus, the China virus, whatever you'd like to call it. It's got many different names. But before it hit, we were doing really well. and We're still doing very well, but now we're getting back on track. Okay, never mind it isn't a flu. And, and I just want to point that out because his use of that word just doesn't seem to be accidental. It seems purposeful, used to minimize the virus's impact. Never mind, there is no sane person who would say that going back to phase one shutdown in one of the biggest cities in this country is not back on track. Look, the facts tonight show this. The coronavirus pandemic has killed nearly 134,000 Americans. Deaths are now starting to tick back up again after trending down a little bit for months, right? Even as younger people were infected, but we're now starting to see that rate go back up. Listen to how Dr. Anthony Fauci describes the situation right now. My own country, the United States, as I'm sure we'll be able to discuss a little bit more, is in the middle right now, even as we speak, in a very serious problem. A very serious problem, and we're in the middle of it. The president's version, we're back on track, and we've done very well. Well, look, the president doesn't want to hear the facts on this. Actually, according to Fauci, the last time Trump met with Fauci was June 2nd. That's more than a month ago. And the last time that Fauci briefed Trump here personally on the facts, two months ago. So just think about that. Let me just show you what happened since the last time the president of the United States actually had that personal briefing from the person who knows the most and is in charge of the, 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 the infectious disease here. Look at these two maps. When Trump was briefed by Fauci the last time, 22 states, that's May 13th, we're seeing a decrease in the number of cases. Look at that map, 22. The number now, four. The last time Trump got briefed by Fauci, the number of cases in the United States was 1.3 million. It is nearly 2 million more than that today. The last time that President Trump was briefed by Dr. Fauci, the death toll in the United States of America was 79,000. It is now on the verge of 134,000 dead people. But now, instead of fighting the virus, President Trump is fighting Fauci, the leading infectious disease expert in the country, a man who has been in this role since the 1980s and worked for six presidents of both parties. Dr. Fauci is a nice man, but he's made a lot of mistakes. 
Trump attacking Fauci because Fauci says we are in the middle of a really big problem, something the president just can't admit. In an interview with the Financial Times, Fauci saying, quote, I have a reputation, as you probably have figured out, of speaking the truth at all times and not sugarcoating things. And that may be one of the reasons why I haven't been on television very much lately. He speaks the truth and Trump doesn't want to hear it. So Trump doesn't want Fauci on TV doing interviews because that's the media that Trump consumes. I believe the company should Okay, boom fact the family how you guys doing out there you are really as always y'all get the first fresh manna before any other platforms uh, have an opportunity to enjoy such as uh, YouTube and Instagram and uh, the various platforms but I just want to take this time out I'm preparing to do some live YouTube videos, you guys. First, I'm going to implement uh, the 2020 reset. And what that means is I'm going to relaunch uh, my awareness of the various industries I represent and what opportunities are there for individuals resources that are available and just a whole list of things that dr d had an opportunity to um, gather and don't mind sharing it with you guys now the other put that down son. the other information um, and work that entails me to do any type of labor, of course, that has a fee. But when I just come out like this and give you guys an opportunity to see what's out there, see what I'm offering. Uh, I know I've been away from the media for a while, um, but the Holy Spirit kind of like jerked me this morning and said, you don't have to try to perfect this. Go ahead and get back into the grind. And as you know that uh, my mother passed a couple of weeks ago, so it's still kind of fresh. And I was like, oh, I don't feel like being in front of a camera. You know, I don't sound right. I don't look right. I just don't don't feel right, Lord. I just don't want to do it. And so the other day, the Holy Spirit... Well, really, I, I, it was the Lord speaking in my ear because it was so forceful. I jumped up out of my sleep and it was like, <laughs> it was like, 
you shall not die but live. And I was like, huh? And I jumped out. I'm like, what? I'm like, I'm looking around because it sounded like somebody was literally in my ear. And um, and let me rephrase that. That that's the scriptures out of Psalms one nineteen, but what was spoken in my ear it was like you you will not die but live. That's all I heard, and it jumped, and it and it was so force forcefully, it was so strong that I literally jumped out of my slumber and I looked around because I really felt that somebody was talking in my ear. And I was like, oh my gosh, okay, all right. And so I looked up and I said, well, thank you, Lord, for another day. What was that, Lord? Okay, I shall not die but live. Okay, so now what? So with that said, hello. So with that said, I shall not die but live to to declare the works of the Lord. That's what the scripture says in Psalms. Let me get it. Psalms. Matter of fact, I think I have it on my testimony card. Yeah. Psalms 118, verse 17. You shall not die, but live and declare the works of the Lord. And I was like, whoa. So with that said, you guys, I will be presenting some youtube videos so i want you guys to subscribe okay subscribe and then click the bell so you can get the alert so you'll know when i'll be coming on or when i have posted something new and believe me it's gonna be exciting i will be sharing um key tools and techniques just to strive in this chaotic world I will be leaving um, resources for you to obtain various information for your business, how to improve your business. You know, we usually be, this will be our second workshop if it wasn't for COVID-19 preventing because of the due to social distancing. But as everyone else have done, and you will have to do it, convert. into online avenues and platforms so during all of the other stuff that happened last month so rapidly with my mom it was on hold but i could say like two or three months a lot of things was on hold for me but thank the lord he has definitely strengthened and have made me um more how can I put it? More, oh, I ain't going to say aware, but I, I has given me more comfort. I guess maybe that's the better word that I can use to, to press forward and continue doing what he has given me to do. And so my, my experiences and my reflections in my mission is to make sure that that you can see the transparency in my life that, hey, Dr. D go through hell and hot water just like everybody else. 
And it's just step by step in, in strides how you overcome it. When you miss the mark, how to get back up. Go to the Father. You have the mercy seat there for you. And that's what that's 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 the confidence that we have in our God because He has made all sorts of avenues for us to go down and receive our 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 recompense and receive our love and, and, and comfort from him not from others from him and with that I can definitely say he touched individuals heart that he wants you to be connected with that can come in and comfort you okay so I want I want you guys to understand that this life that we are in you have to make the best of it. You're going to have to create your own joy, your own happiness, your own freedom. You're going to have to do it. You Don't sit around and think that, oh, the government going to do it. My neighbor going to do it. My cousin going to do it. My family going to do it. No, God has given all of us the ability to complete what he has for us to do. And even through the hard knocks of life. You can still make it. And I can definitely testify and tell you that no matter what comes your way, no matter what that TKO is, you're going to make it. You're going to get on up. In the in the words of, of um, Sylvester Stallone, out of Rocky, he said when he was trying to explain to his son, you know, his son had this notion of he didn't want to be affiliated with his dad because of his career and sometimes I believe that our children be ashamed of us parents sometimes because they feel we should be at a certain level not knowing the things that we had to sacrifice so they could be at another level you understand and with that a lot of pre-judgment happens between the relationships in families with siblings, with parents, with cousins. I mean, but, you know, your bestie. Sometimes things do not come across clearly. And and if we as individuals can begin, all right, to look within ourselves and say, okay, I'm lacking in this. I need this. So because I need this, I'm not going to uh, cause friction because I'm expecting somebody else to come in and meet that need that only God can fill. If you really think about it, you guys, only God can fill it. And so from now on, I'm going to press my way to, to be on this feed and just not only when you tune into the Boom Factor Show on Anchor.com, fm slash dr d check out favorite that station it's on various platforms spotify um good read cash box podcast radio public google i uh, itunes we are over 12 platforms internet platforms that you can tune into the boom factor radio show and subscribe to the Boom Factor TV show, okay? Within these two avenues, 
Boom Factor will have Boom Factor news about schools, about business, about publishing, about just simple life applications, about your health. We're going to tap in every reservoir that God has given us to tap into. And I am so excited that you will come along with Dr. D. Even within the Safe Zone broadcast, it's still active, still has its platform on anchor.fm slash Safe Zone broadcast, okay? And there you will receive structured teachings of different subjects that I have already brought forth. And I'll be uploading more of those um, series, but the big series that I will begin coming forth with, and that's the generational matters. Purify the bloodline. Oh, and I'm going to keep professing it. I'm going to keep declaring it because I know what God has structured me to to, uh, bring forth. It's going to be a blessing for so many of you guys. So I just want you all just to get get ready and rock and roll. Remember, subscribe to my YouTube, to the Boom Factor TV channel. Click the bell, all right? And whenever I upload new feeds, you will have first dabs on them. And share Share Boom Factor Radio to your friends and families and somebody that you really think will be inspired knowing that, hey, I'm not the only one going through this. Oh, I'm not the only one feeling this way. Oh, I'm not the only one that got hurt in this way. Oh, I'm not the only one. And that would alleviate a lot of the depression and suicide that comes along when people feel that, hey, I'm dealing with this all by myself. My life is no more. It don't even pay for me to stay alive. And the enemy will come in and start whispering things in their ears. So let's just join together and share this link with your family and friends and let them know, hey, Dr. D is about to come back live and strong. That's right. And I'm going to have some good, exciting information for you every time. Okay? So God bless you. I appreciate everyone that have stood by me since 2017 on this awesome radio show and this awesome program, the Boom Factor TV show. will be going on two years and we will soon begin to have our guests via Zoom, okay? And just share what they're doing in this time of this coronavirus pandemic and how their organization and how God has really reconstruct how they can still uh, impact the community, okay? So, as once again, all the information will be on the link. This says Danielle Irving, better known as Dr. D, that many may know me of, or Sister Danny, or Sister D, or Miss D. My customers call me Miss D. All right? And I will be back next time here on the Boom Factor TV. God bless you.
I shall 